Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. On Commons People this week, we finally get the Russia report. No one in government knew if Russia interfered in or sought to influence the referendum because they did not want to know. More trouble with China. Whatever the legal label, it is clear that there are gross, uh, egregious human rights abuses are going, going on. And is everything going to be normal by November? It is my strong and sincere hope that we will be able to review the outstanding restrictions and allow a more significant return to normality from November at the earliest. and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh. Now I know I said the previous episode was the last of the summer but we've had so much big news this week that we had to do one more. So joining me this week is Paul Waugh. Hi Arj. Hi Paul. Rachel Wearmouth's here. Hiya. Hello Rachel and uh, we're delighted to be joined again by the Conservative MP and Chair of the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, Tom Tugendhat. Hi Arj. Hi Tom, welcome back. Thanks, how's it going? Yeah, very well, thanks. Well, it felt like we'd been waiting for it our entire lives, but this week the Intelligence and Security's Russia report was finally published. It contains sharp criticism of the government's failure to protect the EU referendum from potential Russian interference, and there was a call for a quick public assessment of whether Moscow tried to influence the Brexit vote. Boris Johnson, however, dismissed the committee's recommendation. Let's listen. There's been no doubt what this is really all about, Mr Speaker. This is about pressure from the Islingtonian Remainers uh, who have seized on this, on this report uh, to try to give the impression that the Russia, the Russian interference was somehow responsible for Brexit, Mr Speaker. That's what this is, this is all about. The people of this, t- this country didn't vote to leave the EU because of pressure from Russia or Russian interference. They voted because they wanted to take back control of our money, of our trade policy, of our... Um, the Prime Minister... Paul, dismiss concerns about this report and the Brexit vote specifically as an Islingtonian Remainer plot. Putting aside the fact that he used to be an Islingtonian, is he right? Well, one thing that the Prime Minister was shrewd to do was to sort of press on the bruise about uh, Starmer's Remainer credentials, particularly in red wall seats, obviously. Um, I think the Conservatives are getting back a lot of focus groups, which suggest that that's Starmer's Achilles heel. He was obviously... uh, wrong and it was uh, ill-judged to try and attack Starmer on security and national security given his experience at the DPP. That really didn't work. But on, on the whole Brexit stuff, um, for Starmer it really is a bit like um, Faulty Towers don't, and don't mention the war because you know, don't mention the Brexit war is the Starmer approach right now. He, you very rarely hear him talk about Brexit. Um, Labour very deliberately abstained on a vote the other week uh, about whether to extend the transition period. We've heard nothing from Starmer himself about the idea of what's going to happen if there's no deal on Brexit at the end of the year, which it may well look increasingly likely after today's talks from between Barnier. Um, and I think that's what's going to really be interesting will be how Starmer then reacts in the new year. Uh, so far on Brexit, I think his best approach is to say, look, 
I want a better Brexit than the Tories. And that's in a way he's going to get the, those Red Wall voters back. But also he risks obviously upsetting some of those Remainers in the South that, that you know, he's their, he's their matinee idol and has been for the last few years. But he's going to have to get quite real and say, look, um, we need a better Brexit, a better deal. I suspect what he'll do is what he's done throughout his whole career so far. He'll redefine the terms of the debate according to how he wants them. So he won't necessarily say... Um, I'm in favour of um, a free trade Brexit or a, or a fair trade Brexit. What he'll say, he'll do what the PM does. And as the PM said earlier this year, he said, I don't even use the word Brexit now. That's gone. It's happened. It's in the rear, rear view mirror. And he could quote Johnson himself and say, that's, that's history now. What we need is a better trading relationship with the EU. And he might not even use the word Brexit. He might say, we need better trade terms for jobs, for industry. Um, I suspect that's what he'll try and do. Um, Tom, just coming back to the Russia report, um, feel free to talk about Brexit as well, but what did you make of the report and uh, Johnson's response? Well, I have to say I, I thought the report was very good because it was almost identical to the report that we published two years earlier uh, in uh, May 2018. Indeed, the report written by Dr Ariella Huff, who's a specialist on the Foreign Affairs Committee, is remarkably similar to that published by the Intelligence and Security Committee. So all I can say is it was no surprise. Um, I mean, it was surprising that I hadn't had any forewarning of it, but when I read it, it was exactly what we'd recommended, which we is pretty simple. We need to take this seriously. This is a genuine threat to the democracy of the United Kingdom and to our national security. I mean, if who people are able to choose and how people are able to govern themselves is not what our national security is about, then frankly, it's hard to imagine what is more important, uh, because that is really fundamental to the liberty of the British people. So we think that's hugely important. Yeah, and, and, and Tom, what needs to happen now in relation to Russia? Because one of the key criticisms of the report was that the government has kind of ignored this issue for quite a long time. Well, it's not really Russia, let's be honest. It's, I mean, Russia is a, a, a petrol station with a, with a mafia a gang attached to it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a joke of a country that's been raped blind by uh, a bunch of bullies and thieves for 20 years and is now a shadow of its former self, as, as indeed the GRU uh, stuff in Salisbury demonstrated this once feared military unit is now being, you know, making comments about the heights of, of, of steeples in the UK. I mean, what kind of a what kind of a serious military outfit of that? It, it's not. It's a total joke. Uh, and that's what Putin has done to Russia. He's turned it from a, a, an important international player into a broken uh, mafia dominated state. The real threat is actually from many other countries around the world. Uh, when you look at uh, the way that we see foreign influence in the UK, uh, Russia's cack-handed attempts at, at influence uh, have merely warned us that there are very real attempts uh, from coming from other nations. And we've got to be absolutely aware that this, this is geographically neutral, if you like. This is about uh, the ability of uh, individuals and states around the world trying to influence our politics through underhand means. Yeah, and we'll come on to talking about China in a minute. Um, Rachel, I just wanted to ask you, Paul touched on it there. Um, was it a bold move by Keir Starmer to raise the Russia report at PMQs, given Corbyn's and Labour's history with uh, the Salisbury attack in particular? Yeah, but sort of bold and quite strategic, as it, as it turns out. So I think that um, it, gave, it gave Keir Starmer this opportunity to stand up at the end of, of the questions and say, like, uh, I don't know if the PM's noticed, but um, the Labour Party's under new management, you know, and it kind of helped him to draw a bit of a bit of a line underneath sort of Labour's previous disastrous record on foreign affairs generally under Jeremy Corbyn. So I think it was 
um, bold, but I think he pulled it off, as in he got what he wanted, that big moment. And it kind of came on the day when he'd, uh, the Labour Party had issue, issued apologies to um, the BBC Panorama whistleblowers as well, so it kind of served two purposes for him, I think. Can I, can I ask Tom briefly, what did you think, Tom, about that bit in the ISC report where actually, as Arj pointed out um, in his own write-up of the report, it wasn't just the government that was being attacked in that report, it was the security service, MI5, were, you know, were told basically, you're a self-tasking unit, you're not like MI6, you're not like GCHQ aren't self-tasking, you've got it within your own ability to actually see a problem and then alert us to it. Um, where does that leave MI5? Well, I think there's, there are some serious questions in this report on those elements. And in fact, that's realistically the most interesting bit. It's certainly the only novel bit in the report is the comments on the on the agencies. And it's something that I raised with the then Home Secretary in 2015-16 and have since had uh, various meetings with various Home Secretaries with since. We seem to had a few more of them than I would have initially chosen. Uh, because, you know, if you went onto the, the terrace of the House of Commons in 2015, you would have seen many people who frankly shouldn't have been there. If you uh, look at some of the people who are attending or paying for uh, different uh, events, sponsoring different things, then you, you know, they raise questions. And, you know, there's a natural reticence, of course there is, of the intelligence services to steer clear of politics because they don't want to be seen to be uh, having a, 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 an influence on the independent uh, desires of the British people. And quite rightly, they don't want to be seen as having any uh, influence over democracy in the sense of uh, the ex free expression and free exchange of the British people. But they need to realise that that unwillingness to act, that unwillingness to see that there are people who are genuinely trying to exploit and promote division in our country as a form of strengthening their own position and weakening ours is a real threat to national security and frankly you know if mi5 aren't willing to act on that aren't willing to see uh, and, and walk a very careful line there then they're not really defending the realm what they're doing is they are uh, you know they're giving parking tickets while there's looting going on yeah and tom kind of picking up on what you mentioned there do you think your party now needs to do more in relation to donors and who gets access to ministers and senior figures in the Conservative Party? I think politics around the world has uh, really woken up of late. You know, we've seen it in the United States, we've seen it in Australia, we've seen it in New Zealand, we've seen it in France. Uh, political influence, the nature of political influence has changed hugely. If you look at the fact that Gerhard Schröder, the former Chancellor of Germany, is very, very much part of the Putin camp these days, or if you look at the influence of one or two Chinese donors in Australia, and indeed the recent arrest of an Australian senator uh, for foreign influence, you know, we are seeing that democracies around the world are having to wake up to a new reality, which is that there are countries in, the, in, this, in this globe who are not just trying to influence the outcome of a vote, they're actually trying to destroy the democratic process entirely. They're actually trying to say that the entire system has no basis of trust and you're better off handing over to authoritarianism because at least then you know the answer. So Conservative Party and donors, do you think the Conservative Party needs to stop accepting donations from certain people? Well, I think uh, I think that all parties need to be extremely careful about who they partner with. And, I, you know, I've been pretty clear about it, as you as you know, Arj. You know, it is it is a matter of national security uh, for all of us. OK, well, it's been another big week in foreign affairs with China also in the spotlight. 
US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo visited the UK this week and had a clear message for the government, get tougher on China. That was after Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab suspended the UK's extradition treaty with Hong Kong and slapped an arms embargo on the territory in response to China's controversial national security law. Tory MPs, including Tom, continue to push for a harder line, particularly as more evidence emerges of China's persecution of the Uyghurs. Let's hear Pompeo's message to Beijing. You can't go make claims for maritime regions that you have no lawful claim to. You can't threaten countries and bully them in the Himalayas. You can't engage in cover-ups and co-op international institutions like the World Health Organization. We want, we want to see every nation who understands freedom and democracy and values that and knows that it's important to their own people, their own sovereign country to be successful, to understand this threat that the Chinese Communist Party is posing to them. Paul, Dominic Raab insisted this week that the UK isn't dancing to America's tune on China, but we saw Mike Pompeo come over and host Tory MPs and it looked like very much he was trying to influence the government. What, what do you make of what happened? Well, there was a, a quite awkward moment for uh, Dominic Raab in that press conference with Mike Pompeo, where Pompeo said, um, uh, look, uh, we welcome, we very much welcome Britain's uh, sovereign decision. And it's just the way in which he said it. Um, uh, that it, what came across Rab's face was a sort of almost look of horror. Uh, he could see how it would perceived Britain being a bit of a poodle. And so then Rab, to his great credit, actually said, well, actually, the reality is that it was US sanctions that drove this. Um, and he made a very good point, because as we all know, without those sanctions, policy literally would not have changed. Even if Tom had wanted it to, um, which he did want to, and others, um, the sanctions gave the government no choice. And it, crucially, it's not just the government, it gave our spooks no choice because that's why the National Cyber Security Centre had to instantly reassess their assessment as soon as those sanctions were put in place. They did it within days. They started a review and that review concluded that on technical grounds and everyone forgets this, but on technical grounds, it meant that um, Huawei simply could not be trusted to produce superconductor semiconductor chips that Britain could trust um, because they wouldn't be allowed any access to any American Intel in designing them. Now, you might say that's convenient. Uh, Tom might say it's convenient, but actually it's the fact. Um, so it meant that those sanctions really have driven everything. And it shows that Britain is not exempt from America's reach when it comes to the law. Uh, every single country in the world is affected by these sanctions. There's no exemption. And actually, um, you might say it's quite shrewd on behalf of the American and Trump administration to, to have tweaked their rules, their trade rules, after all, which meant that this was a significant change in security policy. Uh, Tom, Johnson told the 1922 committee last night he wasn't going to be mindlessly adversarial to China. What do you make of that? Well, I'm delighted to hear it. He shouldn't be mindlessly adversarial. And, uh, you know, he should think about every uh, encounter that we have with China and, and see how we can promote the interests of the British people in, in those encounters. But that means also being pretty clear about not just the treatment of the Uyghur Muslim community in Western China, the forced sterilization, the mass imprisonments uh, and many other abuses, but also the clamping down on democracy in Hong Kong, the uh, detention and bulldozing of churches around China, and of course, uh, the attempts to undermine the international rules-based system that we've seen by the uh, rewriting the rules that uh, Huawei is a part of, a very small part of, but part of. And so, you know, I agree with Paul that, uh, that the, the facts changed and so the government changed its, its view. But that wasn't the only fact that changed. 
uh, as Paul knows very well, uh, the facts changed in Parliament as well. Uh, and the facts were that it was absolutely clear to everybody from the Prime Minister down that there was no way the existing uh, Huawei proposal would pass the House. Yeah, Tom, I, I wanted to ask you about that, actually, because there's been interesting reports of splits between anti, well, not anti-China, I'm not calling you anti-China, but China sceptics, shall we say, Conservative MPs. Um, what's going on there? You weren't at the Pompeo meeting, you were at another meeting with, I think, um, the Japanese. Um, are you? Why are you fighting? You're, you're kind of winning your, back, your war and... Uh, and falling out. What's happening? Well, well that's, that's, uh, I'm afraid that's not true. I, <laughs> I was not only invited to the Pompeo meeting, I was asked to host it. Uh, and I, and I said, uh, I said very kindly, uh, you know, I explained very, uh, very kindly to, to, to Mike Pompeo that uh, the reason I wasn't going to do that at that time is because I'd already committed to hosting the Japanese defense minister and that uh, he would understand uh, as, uh, as a diplomat that it's much more important to build alliances than consolidate old ones. And he laughed and agreed entirely that the, uh, the most important thing was to make sure that we got uh, built up a relationship with Japan at this time, given that uh, he and I agree very clearly on, um, on, on these subjects uh, with the United States. So that was, that was why we weren't there, but it was, uh, but it was, uh, it was very kind of him to offer to come and talk to the China Research Group, frankly. Uh, but look, I mean, you know, there's, there's many different groups in Parliament, as you know, Arj, and, and I work very well very closely with Ian, uh, as you know. Uh, he and I have been supporting each other on the Uyghur case. And I, in fact, I think I praised him in Parliament this week uh, because he's been a, a very clear voice on this. So he and Alicia Cairns and many others have been really powerful advocates for the uh, human rights of the Uyghur community, for the anti, uh, you know, Ian has been part of many groups who have been championing people like Nathan Law, the, the Hong Kong pro-democracy activist who's been in the UK. So, you know, there's, there's, I would say there's a difference in emphasis. Ian is focusing very much on his IPAC program, which is linking together parliamentarians around the world. And it's an extremely important and very uh, powerful uh, grouping. Uh, and I'm focusing more on, on doing the research. But, uh, you know, may a hundred flowers bloom. <laughs> I was just wondering, how do you think um, Boris Johnson views Mike Pompeo seeing some of his potential rebel backbenchers? Do you, do you think he sees it as a little bit aggressive? How do you think he views it? I'm sure that the Prime Minister, as a, as a, as a not only a notable pro-American, but as an American, uh, welcomes <laughs> the, uh, the, the partnership between the United States and his parliamentary party. I'm sure he sees it as a positive. Yeah, Tom, we've been talking about the Uyghurs. What, what, can, what can Dominic, you were asking Dominic Raab about the Uyghurs, uh, and Ian Duncan-Smith was as well in, in the comments. What can we actually do about it? Because there's some horrendous footage coming out of Xinjiang. Well, for those of us who uh, brought up knowing what happened to our families in, in, in the 30s, the echoes are really quite striking. And I was, I was very pleased to see uh, Rabbi the Lord Sachs, uh, former chief rabbi of this country, writing uh, about the parallels that he saw between the treatment of the Uyghurs and the treatment of, uh, of Jews uh, 78 years ago. Uh, I think he's right. And so I think what we need to do is we need to look hard at how we can use the Magnitsky-style sanctions that we've just introduced and that Dom Raab has been campaigning for, for well, since he was in Parliament and probably even before, frankly. He's been, a, he's been an absolute clear voice on this for many, many years. And maybe look at the evidence that uh, Mike Pompeo gave to the Prime Minister uh, and see whether we can't do something similar for a few named individuals in the uh, Ministry of Public Security in China or perhaps... Uh, the Ministry of State Security, the two um, 
police forces that are uh, effectively rounding up and detaining and spying on uh, many people. But I think we also need to look at companies that are operating in the UK. And I think here we have a personal uh, responsibility as well and see whether we are prepared to use, to partner with, to share services with companies that are either integrally part of the security state, companies like uh, Huawei or Hikavision, or whether we're willing to use platforms that are being used by um, China state uh, security apparatus uh, for propaganda. And here, you know, TikTok is one, but there are others too. Tom, I want to ask you, do, I can see the clear case for being more robust with China, but what about those reformers within the Chinese Communist Party? Because that's often, we're told, the, the key to real change. Um, have you got any intel on, on how we can help them? Can you name one, Paul? No, but um, <laughs> I, I suspect our security services can. Um, you'd be surprised. No, there you are. Think there are none. If there are any, they are remarkably silent. And it's not a surprise that they're silent, by the way. That doesn't, make, that doesn't mean they're not there. And it doesn't mean that there aren't uh, different voices within the Chinese Communist Party. There certainly are different voices within the Chinese Communist Party. And there are people who don't agree with the Leninist nationalism that Xi has gone towards in, in the last few years. There are others who promote uh, Wu's line or Deng's line of uh, more international engagement, more cooperation. But the reality is that she has operated uh, what he calls an anti-corruption drive uh, to lock up an enormous number of his opponents. Yes, quite a few of them were corrupt, unsurprisingly, for a one-party state. It does encourage that sort of behavior, does promote corruption. Uh, so he, he has been extremely clear uh, and extremely authoritarian in closing down uh, other avenues of, of comment in the Communist Party, uh, certainly up at the top. Um, so it's, it's not immediately clear that those voices are, are about to emerge. Right, we must move on because it's the end of the parliamentary term. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Uh, and Boris Johnson took the opportunity to address backbench Tories on the 1922 committee last night. His broad message was that the last few coronavirus-dominated months have been tough, but it's now time to deliver on Tory election promises. But the PM also warned lockdown sceptic Tory MPs that there's no room for complacency in the fight against the virus and suggested a second spike could arrive if we're not careful. As the UK opens up, the summer is likely to be dominated by questions about the potential for that second spike. Let's hear Keir Starmer on the issue. We all want society to reopen. We all want our economy to start growing again. So we'll look at the details of this plan. But the key now is confidence. Do the public have confidence in the measures the government's put in place? Do businesses have confidence in the advice that's been given? Um, and can we have confidence that the government's scientific advisers support these measures? This can't be done on a wing and a prayer. It requires a credible plan uh, and national leadership. Uh, Paul, a day after we recorded last week's podcast, Boris Johnson said we could return to normal by November. What's he on about? Well, I can see what he's trying to do. He's trying to set out a, a sort of optimistic, hopeful strategy where the British people can be reassured that if they, you know, stick to the rules and if they don't go uh, bonkers when it comes to relaxing some of these uh, lockdown restrictions, um, then we will be able to go back to some kind of normality, even the absence of social distancing completely. And that was that was the bit that was really quite surprising because I think most people expect some kind of social distancing to exist for at least another year. Maybe there's no guarantee we're going to get a vaccine soon. Certainly not by the end of the year, and probably maybe not even by next spring. But I think what 
what is encouraging for the government is that today, for example, we had new test and trace figures, which are for the first time going the right direction. Uh, they're getting near the 80% contacts that are needed to make the system viable. Um, we've just done a story on the fact that uh, the government are going to announce um, a couple of hundred new walk-in test centres so that every single urban centre in Britain by November, by th this key date of November, um, will be able to be within 30 minutes walk of having a test. Now, that could revolutionise the way the government is combating this disease. Um, it means that every town, every city will have a walk-in centre. You, you don't need a car accessible by foot or by cycle um, within 30 minutes if you if you're worried and they can take hundreds of people per day now that i think is a, a smart move that together with um working closely with local public health chiefs to, to lock down now that they've got the data i think for the first time in my opinion we're beginning to see a strategy that might work the big problem is one of complacency because it's a bit too soon you might say given all these worries then to to think that somehow you're going to abandon social distancing itself in November. I think that's one thing the PM might have to change his mind yeah, on. Tom, looking back over the last few months, I mean, it has been tough for everyone. Um, how do you think the two main party leaders have done? Well, look, I, I, I'm much more interested in, in, in how uh, the country's doing. And I have to say that there's been a lot of negativity, but I think Paul sets out quite rightly uh, some real positives for the future here. And if you listen to, you know, Economists like Ty Cowan, who has been uh, pretty outspoken in, in failures in the United States and, and indeed in, in the UK earlier on, he's just come out in Bloomberg saying that uh, actually the UK is uh, one of the world leaders now uh, in terms of responding to this disease because of the vaccine work, because, as Paul said, the, the, the increase in test and trace. And promoting uh, some of the things that we're getting right is just as important as pointing out things that we're getting wrong. Uh, because if we're going to learn, we need to make sure that we, do, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And, and here the UK is actually doing well. You know, the vaccine work that we're doing could be completely uh, transformative, not just for the UK, but for the whole world. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Boris Johnson had another uh, message for the 22 last night, Rachel. And it looks like when we get back after summer, the union is going to be the next big issue in the PM's tray. Uh, what's next in the battle over Scotland? Well, it's it's seen as sort of the biggest threat to the stability of the, the government at the moment is the, the rise in support for Scottish independence. It's um it's been going up throughout the coronavirus crisis. Obviously, Sturgeon holds the briefing every every day. It's kind of underlined all the ways in which um, Scotland's already slightly separate to the rest of the UK. You know, the health is devolved. Um, that sustained lead, you know, some as high as fifty five percent is seen as a is a big problem and obviously next year is the uh, Scottish 2021 elections and all eyes now are on what's going to be in those manifestos is um, a new independence referendum going to be in the SNP's manifesto you would have you would have thought so and they're on, co they're on course for a big big victory at the moment which is it's you know it's going to be like 15 years they're going to have had in power pro-independence majority in the Scottish parliament it's it gets really difficult for the conservatives I think to make the case for the union now. But in a way, despite the fact that Boris Johnson would loathe um, the idea of independence happening, let's be frank, there are some Conservatives who actually wouldn't mind uh, an independent Scotland because it means permanent Conservative rule within England, does it not? I mean, no, Keir, Starmer would Keir Starmer would have a very, very tough time trying to get a majority without Scotland, as, as we've seen since 2010. 
sorry, the, the, the fact that the politics of the UK would change if Scotland separated from the Union are, are clearly true. But the idea that that would embed permanent Conservative government, I think, is not true. It would fundamentally change uh, every part of the UK. Uh, and England would not simply be the leftover bit of the, you know, it wouldn't simply be our UK. It'd be an entirely new state uh, for the first time since 1700. So, you know, the idea is that the things would continue the same is, is, is rubbish, which is why I think there's... Um, an increasing awareness, not just, by the way, in the Conservative Party, but also in the Labour Party, uh, that what is happening uh, in, in various parts of the United Kingdom really requires serious addressing. And, you know, we've seen a massively centralised uh, Scottish state, hugely centralised on the central belt, massively uh, emphasised by Edinburgh dominating uh, the entire, you know, the entire nation. We're seeing that changing now and an increasing amount of people now realizing that actually the whole of the UK needs to address this because the the idea that you can have you know Scotland having all these powers and Kent not it just doesn't work we've got an over centralized state in England we've got an over centralized state in Scotland and we need to find a much better way of devolving power down you know the things that we've realized work what does does work well those scheme has kept jobs going from you know all the way from John O'Groats to Land's End right I mean that that's something where the union has really uh, demonstrated its worth. And then when you look at different areas of health, you know, public health, Scotland and England have both failed. Just look at the care homes, look at the failure to stockpile PPE. We have seen utter fa failures in both public health systems. We need to find better ways of making it more accountable. I'd rather see public health Glasgow and public health Kent, where you actually have engagement at a much more local level and you actually have communities that really do understand the difference between Glasgow and Dundee as you do between Kent and London you know just because you're next to each other doesn't mean you're the same. Oh, isn't that kind of already going on Tom with regional public health directors and so forth in council in councils? Well it, it's this is the problem it's sort of half happening and half not and this is why what I'd like to see is a real proper look at uh, the system of government in the United Kingdom. On one, on some levels, we're massively overgoverned. So, uh, in my home in Kent, I'm represented by uh, four different people: parish, uh, district, county, and of course myself at national. Um, and in other parts of the UK, you're represented by, you know, uh, even more. So, you know, you, sorry, similar numbers or, or fewer. It's it's a very very unequal system that we're operating across. Our... Anyway, it's time for the quiz. Hey. Um, this week's <laughs> is all about UK-Russia relations. So Ooh. just shout out the answer if you know it. Uh, in 2012, Jonathan Powell, Tony Blair's former chief of staff, admitted the UK was behind a plot to spy on Russia using a hidden device. Russia, however, discovered it. But what was the device which was placed on a Moscow street hidden inside? Ooh, was it a post box? Yes, Tom. It was Very a fake clock. Uh, yeah. Uh, Did it have eyeballs? <laughs> uh, Powell said it was embarrassing and said the Russians had us banterites. Wow. Uh, question number two. Uh, which Russian in February paid £90,000 for a game of tennis with Boris Johnson and what is their connection to Vladimir Putin? Isn't it Chinookin's wife? Correct. Lubov Chinookin... Uh, wife of the former Russian finance minister, Vladimir Chinookin, and a big donor to the Tory party. It's one all. So Rachel can draw it or Paul and Tom can take the win here. Uh, in 2019, why did Vladimir Putin say the UK was less democratic than Russia? 
Was it Brexit? Was it turnout in the general election? No. That's quite some chutzpah, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, You've really got to be going some to be less democratic than authoritarian dictatorship. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. God, that's look, a good look, question, look, Arj. 2019, was it the Conservative Party leadership? Yes. Because only Conservative Party members got to choose who replaced Theresa May as the next Ted Prime Minister. Did. He does believe in one oh, that, man, one man. That's classic. <laughs> hey, Arj, you forgot the fourth question. Which member of this podcast panel shares a birthday with Vladimir Putin? <laughs> it's you. You. <laughs> yes. Are you, are you, are you going to be pictured riding horses topless on your birthday? Yeah. <laughs> on my leaving front page from the Evening Standards is a picture of my head on top of uh, Putin's uh, naked torso. So, you know, be warned. Well, on, that, on that note, uh, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so that you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. We'll just leave you with SNP MP John Nicholson struggling after his cat Rocco crashed his appearance at the DCMS committee. YouTube kids do it and the BBC are also now embracing this. Why, and I apologise for my cat's tail, why, um, why are you not doing this by default? <laughs> Rocco, could you tell them? <laughs> <laughs>